The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. your Bibles, if you could grab them, open with me. We are going to be finishing Psalms this morning. Not that we've preached all of them, but every summer we take a, the summer weeks and we focus on Psalms, and uh, I cannot believe it, but we are at our final Psalm of the summer. I wish summer was over, but it's still 115, uh, but it's our, last, it's our last week in the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 133. A very short, very direct psalm this morning. While you're getting there, uh, I do want to give you a heads up on where we are going next week. We start into the book of Amos. Um, Amos, as I said last week, I fully know that it's probably not the most popular book. Um, many of you maybe haven't read it, and if you have, maybe it was a part of one of those reading plans, and so you blitzed through it. Um, there's a good chance that not many of us has actually spent a whole lot of time in Amos. So I'm really excited to sit in, walk through this incredible book uh, together. It's applicable, it's timely, it shows the character and faithfulness, grace of our God. Hopefully you're able to be with us next week as we continue. We're, we're going to be here through the fall, and so we're going to get started and work through this beautiful book um, together. Uh, like I said this morning, though, we have our final psalm, a short one. There's really only one point to this psalm, and, uh, and we're going to work through it today. Um, but as I, before I read the psalm, actually, I want to um, set the scene a little bit, give some context for this psalm. Um, as we read the Old Testament, uh, especially Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, the history so we read those books, and we read what happened in those books, what you're going to find out is there was so much turmoil, there's so much conflict, there was so much war and death, and it's amazing to me that God comes and he sets his people free, he does a work in them, he frees them, gives them his word, his prophets, his presence, his blessing, and yet they are just like I mean, it's conflict constantly. They, are, they, they turn, they divide, they scheme against each other. It's a good thing we would never do that, ever do that. But story after story, they're divided. And uh, unity was rare, um, and division was the norm. So you read these books, you see it time and time again, story and story again. And um, I want to sh- read one scene in scripture for you. You don't need to turn with me here. I'll have it up on the screen um, because I want to set the stage for the psalm we're about to step into. Um, I think, I believe this, this psalm really does, or this text really sets us up well. This comes from 1 Chronicles um, 12, starting in verse 38. It says, all these men of war arrayed in battle order. So these are the mighty men, war men, right? Um, ready for conflict, Already been through the conflict, okay? That's them, ready, dressed for battle. All of these men, it says, come to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. 
And listen, it wasn't just these big, bad, mighty men, because right after it says, likewise, all the rest of Israel were of single mind to make, what is that, single mind, that's refreshing, to make David king. It's unity. It's unity. Now, I want to read just a little bit further to describe this scene. It says, and they were there with David for three days eating, drinking, for their brothers had made preparation for them. And also their relatives, as far as Issachar, Zebulun, and Nephtali, they came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on oxen, lots of animals, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, that sounds delicious, clusters of raisins, wine and oil, oxen and sheep. And then listen to that final line, for there was joy in Israel. There's joy in Israel. We are going to come back to this several times this morning, but when division is the norm, unity is so, so sweet. When division is the norm, unity is so sweet. It is joyous. It is beautiful. And for the people of Israel, it it was from one conflict to the other. Division and conflict, they faced it everywhere, and then the clouds break and unity happens, and a party with lots of fig cakes happens. It's a party. It's a celebration because when division is the norm, unity is so sweet. And um, with that, I want to read our psalm, Psalm 133. It says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And first he says, would you behold that? Would you look at that? Look at this. in context here, David had been running for his life, hiding from Saul. He'd been, he'd been um, an enemy of the state. He was, there was people divided by conflict, young nation being torn apart. And yet here in this moment, as we read in our text, there's joy in Israel. Unity, one mind, finally. And David looks out at the scene and says, behold that. Look at that. How good, how pleasant. When brothers come together in unity, live in unity, dwell in unity. Again, when division is the norm, unity is sweet. And so then David compares this unity, to the, then the joy of this unity, to two things. To oil and to dew. First, let's look at oil. He says in verse 2, it is like the precious, I'll get you there, there it is. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, we see this kind of anointing all throughout Scripture. We see when, when they would take the precious oil and spices and anoint the, the priest, anoint Aaron, consecrate him, set them apart. And uh, for example, don't have to turn with me here again, but in Leviticus we see this, a great example of this. It was Moses in this scene who takes the anointing oil 
anoints the tabernacle, all that's in it, consecrates it. Then, verse 11, sprinkles some of it on the altar and on the utensils, the basin, its stand to consecrate them. Sprinkles and then pours in verse 12. Listen to this. Poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So we see throughout the Old Testament, we see this. We see oil being used to anoint and to, they would take some oil and put it on the priest's head. But do you notice the difference between the language here and the language of Psalm 33? And and, in, in Psalm 33, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down all the way to the collar. This is, this is not, church, a, a light sprinkling, a little light dabbing. This is a full-blown dousing. This is, this is absolute abundance, applied in abundance. This is poured on the head in a way that it runs down on the beard, and it's not like this. We're talking Santa here. They didn't cut it. And it runs all the way down and all the way down and all the way down to the robes underneath. This was a complete and total dousing. It was costly. It would run all the way down. This is absolute abundance is what this is. Absolute abundance. In other words, it's not just good and pleasant. It is absolutely over and abundantly good and pleasant. That's what he is saying here. It's running down the head through the beard to the collar good and pleasant. That's what he's saying here. Abundant oil. Then he also says it's like the dew. So it's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Um, now, as I read this verse and studied this verse, I have to confess I was a bit confused by this. Like the first one I get, it's like a dousing of oil. I get that running down and um, I get that overabundance imagery here, but for, for this one, I struggled because I don't think of abundance with dew, especially in San Antonio. Um, I think of scarcity. I think of a little on the water or on the grass, a little bit, a little, and that's all I think of. So if I'm trying to communicate abundance, I mean, David, come on, thunderstorm, flood. We got flood language everywhere, flood. And, and, but do, and so as I was looking into the scene, I, I, I needed some help. And, and I think this happens a lot as we read scripture, by the way. We live in north central San Antonio, Texas in 2022. Not ancient Israel. I've never been to Herman. Ever. I've never seen its do. So looking at this, I, I needed help. Like, I, I wanted to see if there was anything that could kind of shine light on this imagery. And I want to tell you, it was not hard to find this at all. I, I, I wanted to pull one out and just read it to you here. Um, this is from a writer. What I'm about to read is from a writer who's literally sitting at the foot here, just sitting there, looking at it, and, and, and contemplating Psalm 133. He's a good one to... He's a good one to listen to. And listen to what he says. He says, when we read the words of this psalm of the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion, it is now made quite plain to me. Sitting here at the foot of Hermon, I was able to understand how the particles of water which ascend from its wood-crowned peaks 
from the highest gorges filled with perpetual snow after they have been rarefied by beams of the sun and the atmosphere has been moistened by them fall in the evening in the form of a heavy dew upon the lower mountains which lie around it. He then says, one must behold it with its light golden crown glistening in the blue heaven before you can understand this image. There is no part of the entire country with such a heavy dew as this, as what can be observed at the, at the area around Hermon. You see, you see this, this, this imagery here, and you see it's, it's heavy, it's nourishing, it's abundant dew. I mean, rivers are great. Um, rain is great. There's something about that dew. You know what it made me think of? It made me think of the best sprinkler system ever that just douses the land. It doesn't flood it. It coats it and nourishes it and makes it lush. That's what I think of. This is, a, this is the, the, the cloud that covers the land, that makes it the lush, holy land that it is. So just like the oil, this was an imagery here that showed the overabundance of God's goodness. This dew here shows us the, how God in his goodness fertilizes the holy land and makes it the lush land that it is. The oil shows us the blessing and abundance of God's blessing and favor. The dew, again, shows us the blessing and the provision of God over an abundance and with that in mind, church, David looks out over the people of Israel who are no longer fighting, but are in unity. And he says that, how good and pleasant it is. How abundantly good and pleasant it is. It's not just good. It's not just pleasant. It is abundantly good and pleasant. When brothers dwell together in unity, it's like a precious oil on the head running down to the collar. It's like a dew that douses everything and makes it lush. It's that good. And then the final statement, he says, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So like the oil and like the dew, brotherly unity is God-ordained. Just like the oil falls down over the head and the Santa beard and collar, just like the dew comes down from the mountains into the valleys, the blessing and goodness of God and the unity of his people flows down on everyone and everything. It's that abundantly good. Covers how good and how pleasant. Now, if we are honest, I believe that what we just walked through is a lot easier to study from afar. It's a lot easier to think about the dew, and it's a lot easier to think about ancient Israel and the fact that they couldn't get their act together. It's a lot easier to think about the oil. It's a lot easier to think about those things than it is for us to take what this scripture says and to apply it to our lives today, here in this culture, 2022, and to read this in light of our context. I think it's a lot easier to do study this from afar than to let it get anywhere near us. He says how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I am convinced, church, that it is difficult to behold the goodness of unity because for so many of us, we see so little of it. 
we see a lack of it. We see division all over the place. I'll say it again, though. When division is the norm, unity is so sweet. I don't need to tell you how divided, how polarized we are. Red versus blue. Um, Elephants versus donkeys, liberals, conservatives. We have Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, pro-life, pro-choice, vax, anti-vax, mask, anti-vax. I could keep going. That's just what's happening out there. That's the cultural wars of our time. And we could say a lot on that, but that's not what I'm here to do today. I don't want to, ne- I don't want to talk about the wars out there. Instead, with the time we have, I want us to turn in and talk about us here today in here, in the church. Those things matter, but we're going to turn in, that's another time, and we're going to talk about in here, the church, the people of God. Because church, brotherly love and unity is one of the necessary distinguishing marks of the church. And when division is the norm, unity is so sweet. Unity is something that Christ gave his life for. I don't know if you've thought about it in those terms. I think we quickly, when we think about the work of Jesus, we think quickly about our salvation. We think about justification and sanctification, glorification. All of that is true. All of that is true. But Christ didn't only die to save you. He died. He gave his life for you for your salvation, but he also died for our unity together as one new man, one body. We read it in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, about one new body, his body, his church. We read in in Ephesians 2 that the dividing wall is gone. Because of Jesus, what he has done, we can walk in unity as the people of God. He died to save us. Amen. Let's preach that. Let's proclaim that. He also died to bring us together as his people, his church, that we would be united together in Christ. In fact, um, in, in John 17, Jesus actually, I love this. Jesus, this is his prayer, that he prays for you, for you. He says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Do you hear the desire of Christ for union and unity? He's praying for it. He's pleading for it, that we, his people, his church, would be united as one, united with the Father, united with him, and united with each other. As messy as authentic community is in Christ, it's not optional. I want to say this as clearly as I can. 
Brothers and sisters, church is not optional for followers of Jesus. Let it sit. I know that's a big statement. And I know some of you are going to already thinking, and I love that you're thinking this, by the way. Pastor, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through what Jesus did alone, not our church attendance. And I would say, amen, and you're right. Preach it. Proclaim it. Okay? That is absolutely true, and I will, yes. Here's the, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. For you who have been saved, for you who have been saved by Christ, he has done through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. For you who have been saved, hear me, Jesus has not given you option A and option B. Option A is in the church. Option B is Lone Ranger. He did not give you that option. So for us, for, for we who are in Christ, we are now placed by Christ through his work into his people. And he didn't give you an option to say, stiff arm, no. He didn't give you that option. The church is the family that Christ has died to place you in. And the church is a part of his plan for you in Christ. And um, honest pastor moment here uh, for a moment. I'm always honest, so don't hear that you say that and this is contract. No. Um, this... I know how difficult this is. Um, I know I'm a pastor, and I'm probably not even allowed to say what I'm about to say. Or you might think that I'm a pastor, and I don't struggle with this. You're wrong. Um, I really know how difficult authentic church community can be. Several years ago, um, I, uh, I was going through a really difficult time not going to get into all the details. It was this time of absolute crisis. It was a crisis of faith. It was such a difficult time, and I wrestled through it. It's not that I lost faith in Christ or lost faith in his work or in his word. It wasn't that. It was just in this moment, I felt as though I was beginning to lose faith in his church. I was, um, it was so messy, and I was hurt, and I was hurting, and I was struggling, and every time, everything in me, honestly, wanted to put walls up to keep friendly people like you away. Everything in me wanted to say, hey, give me Jesus, but you can keep the bride. This is the closest moment that I have ever been to saying, Jesus, I love you. I just don't think I can love and lead your church. And um, this is the closest moment I have ever felt of just wanting to walk away and to um, step away as a pastor. And, and, and this was really hard. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this, but that moment is, can be so disorienting. It can be so disorienting. Um, and it was in that moment, through the struggle, through the pain, by the grace of God, that I, I just started to realize that Scripture didn't give me the option to say yes to Jesus and say no to the church. That he hadn't given me that, that option. So, Justin, which one do you want? Like, 
He didn't give me that option, but he had a plan, and it was messy, it was difficult, and, and listen, you, you know this about you, I know this about me. You know that you are a messy and difficult sinner saved by grace. You know that about you. And you know what the church is? It's a collection of messy and difficult sinners saved by grace. This will be hard. This will be costly. This will be difficult. But what I have seen in my life, and more importantly, what I have seen in Scripture, coming back to our psalm this morning, is that God's abundant, and I mean that oil pouring all the way down over the head abundant, dew drenching everything abundant, that level of God's overabundance and goodness and pleasure. Church, it is found in the church community when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. In other words, the church is where we are able to say, behold how good and how pleasant it is, in the words of, of David. If we push away from that, if we refuse to be a part, a true part of the church, we are refusing one of the greatest means and one of the greatest blessings and joy and goodness and pleasure that God has given us for our Christian lives. To say this more positively, when we get this, when we see this and step into this, what an incredible gift of his grace. It's like the people in the Old Testament and First Chronicles. It's time to party. Bring out the figs. The, the truth is that church can be a lot of things to a lot of people. It can be great kids' ministry, praise God. It can be good worship, good youth, preaching, good programs, whatever it is, right? It can be a lot of things. But church, if you look around and you see and you behold brothers and sisters who are dwelling together in unity, if you see the unity of Jesus, that is the abundance and goodness and pleasure of God for us to enjoy. Christ gave himself so that we would be able to walk together in that. My hope, my prayer, is that we would continue to be a place where you and I can not only see that goodness and that abundant pleasure, but that you and I can walk in it together as a church. And two caveats to this. Number one, I am not saying that we're all the same. We are not. <laughs> we are a diverse people. Diverse people. And even that diversity proclaims the glory of God. We're not talking about uniformity here. We're talking about diversity unified. Unity in our diversity. That's what we're talking about here. We're not, this isn't a call to all of us to be the same. The second thing, second very important clarification here is we should not sacrifice the truth in order to just be united. Okay, it, it matters what we unite ourselves around. We are united in Christ. So as the church, the people of God, the people of Scripture, I want, to, I want you to hear me. We are more than, but we are never less than the truth, the propositional truth of Scripture, God's truth in Scripture. 
We are more than, but we are never less than. What I mean by that is to say we are more than in a sense that we are not just, Christianity is not just about us intellectually affirming doctrines and creeds and knowing all the right answers. I can think of so many instances where you might know the right answers and the right dogma and you're a jerk. not what I'm talking about. Not what I'm talking about. Where we treat each other terribly or handle conflict horribly and we don't know what it's like to dwell together in unity. I think all of us can think of instances like that. Church, we are so more than, so much more than just a set of doctrines and creeds. <laughs> Thank goodness. Scripture says we're a community of love. We dwell by the Spirit and our God's alive and we're gifted. Unity in Christ is more than head knowledge of the right things. But at the same time, I want to be clear here that we are never less than those truths. <laughs> We're never less than those truths. And what I mean is that we stand together on the truth of God in Scripture. We say together, we believe in God the Father Almighty. We believe in Christ the Son. I could go on. We say these things together, affirming this truth, because unity is not the goal. It's unity in Christ. And in his truth. And so we stand together in all of our diversity under the truth of God. It matters what we unite under. And I want you to hear me, and we're going to finish with this this morning. Um, this kind of unity is going to take all of us fighting for it. This kind of unity is going to take, it's not a spectator sport. And so as we finish this morning, I want to give us, really, I believe there are three options in front of all of us this morning. There are three kinds of people that we can be as we encounter this text about brotherly unity. And they all start with C, so you know it's right, all right? Just joking. But there are three options, and I want to lay them out before, before us. And the first one is this, the contrarian. easier to be the critic, to pick things apart and to find things and to pounce on them. It's always easier to take something apart than it is to build it. Always. It's easier to critique the weeds that you see in the yard than it is to do the work to get them out and to tend the grass. I do that all the time in my yard. A contrarian will naturally want to take this judgmental posture and push community away as it judges its failures. A contrarian, nothing will be good enough. And hear me, if you're a contrarian, you know this is true. It might be good enough, but it won't be good enough for long. There will always be something. No community group will ever be good. There, there's no team or leader that's ever going to be good enough. In fact, there's no church that will ever be good enough. There's a lot of church shopping that goes on in the contrarian community. I mean this in love. Contrarians will always find a way to create us versus them. And, and 
for protection will seek to push them away. And if you have felt that temptation, if you are here and you, you don't need to raise your hand with me here, but if you'd say, that's me, you know how lonely it is. You know how lonely that is. You're never able to say with David, behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. My prayer for you today, contrarian, that you would confess and repent and lay that down. And that you would lean into the imperfect and messy community that is your row. The people sitting right beside you right now that you would lean in and that you would be just as good at seeing the goodness and the unity as you were at seeing all of the cracks and all of the mess. My prayer is that you would be just as diligent in creating and protecting unity as you were at picking it apart. And most importantly, contrarian, I need you to hear me. I love you and you are needed here. You are needed here in this church. Now, maybe, I'm going to move, maybe you're not the contrarian, maybe you fall into the second, which is the consumer. Um, You look and you behold the goodness and the pleasure of unity, and yes, you soak it all up. It's amazing. It's so good. You consume it, but then your temptation over time is to just take and to keep taking, and to keep taking, and to keep taking. As a consumer, you were drawn to the green grass because you enjoy the green grass and the unity in a community. However, if you're honest, you do very little to do anything to earn it, to protect it, to serve it. You enjoy it, but you do very little to contribute to water it, to fight for it. In other words, you do a lot of reaping with a very little amount of sowing. When conflict arises and the messiness of community kind of raises its head, your temptation is to withdraw because you're busy and you got things. And that's just a mess. And, and there's little cons- to consume around you, so you vanish. And, and we, we look for other pastures with maybe some greener grass that takes a little less work. As a consumer, our top question is always, what does this do for me? And should I come to group today? Should I come to church today? What does it do for me? As a consumer, we think of how how these choices impact us and our family, but rarely do we fully comprehend. And I want to encourage you with this, consumers. Rarely do you even understand how much we need you. how much you impact the lives of others, how much others rely on you and depend on you. As a consumer, I would argue that you know the joy of this psalm in part. You know how good, how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. I would argue you know the joy of this psalm only in part because you're rarely a part of the true journey to get there. It, reaping is so much sweeter when you sow. And this is the hard thing about being a consumer is, is it rare, you rarely feel that sense of belonging. 
and it can be just as lonely and just as detached as the contrarian. And the truth is, is that unity is good to be consumed, but it is so much better to be lived, abundantly better to be lived. If you're a consumer this morning, my prayers for you is the same, that you would come and that you would see this in yourself and that you would confess and repent and know that our God is gracious and that you would lay down that what can this do for me attitude and that you would lean into this imperfect and messy community that's right beside you. that's right in front of you, that you would be just as good at sowing as you are at reaping, that you would truly belong and that you would truly realize how much you are needed here. My prayer is that we would lay down the contrarian, the consumer hats, and that lastly, we would become a contributor. A contributor. I referenced the difficult moment that I faced several years ago. Um, that moment when I was hurt, when I was struggling, on the verge of throwing in the towel, in that struggle, by the grace and the strength of God, and I mean that, I don't say that lightly, I didn't quit. And um, in my struggle and my pain, I noticed something. There were brothers and sisters around me who also didn't quit. The enemy wants you to feel alone. <laughs> but rarely is that true. And in that pain, that trial, that moment, let's be honest, there was, uh, there was a lot for contrarians to pick apart. And there was a very little for consumers to consume in those times. And yet, there we were left together. We had Christ, we had the gospel, and we chose to lean in together. And there, each one of us in our own way started to contribute to the unity of his church. And I got to tell you, at Stone Oak Bible, we have a lot of God stories and things to celebrate and testimonies and the good times and what he's done. The baptism, I, I could think of a lot. But this season, this moment, has become one of the sweetest God stories of our church. And I mean that. Because when it was easy, when it was difficult, behold how good and how pleasant it is. When brothers and sisters, they dwell together in unity. I saw people who did not leave but stayed. I saw people who did not run from conflict but leaned in and dealt with it in truth and grace. I saw people who loved me when I was anything but lovable. Who served each other even when it went unnoticed. I want to tell you, I've been excited to preach this psalm because this psalm now hits me at a much deeper level than it has ever hit me before. How good, how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. I see the unity in our church, and church, that unity is costly. It cost Jesus his life, and it is costly because it takes us as his people contributing to the unity that we see in front of us. Unity is costly, but church, it is worth it every time. And when division is the norm, Unity is so sweet, and by this, they will know we are his. I love for each other. As a church, I believe we are a living and breathing example of Psalm 133. By the grace of God, how good and how pleasant it is. So I want to invite you to lean in. 
If you're here and you are not a member, I want to invite you to consider it right now. If you are not in a community group, I want to invite you to join one. If you're not serving in a ministry, I want to invite you to step in. Why? Because the call is for all of us to lean in with the people right beside us. I need you. They need you. You need them. Christ is so good. The gospel is so good. And we can know the abundant goodness and pleasure of God in this life as we dwell together in unity as brothers and sisters in Christ.